The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we'll be looking for our study this evening. It's wonderful to be back again with you and to be able to worship together and to study a portion of God's Word and glorify Him in that study together. In Hebrews chapter 12, I want us to read the section uh, verses 12 through 17. The Hebrew writer says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people, holiness and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The Hebrew writer is obviously writing to a congregation in this epistle, as many of the epistles of the New Testament are addressed to congregations of the Lord. And the church is profoundly described as a body, certainly collectively on a universal level, but the Bible, in its addressing functions of the church and responsibilities of the church, is always considering it on the local level. And so the local church is described profoundly as a body, And this emphasizes a few things. It emphasizes the absolute necessity of every single member, no matter what their function. Romans 12 and verse 4 indicates that as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And that's a wonderful picture that the Holy Spirit paints for us. This comes with many implications. And I want to suggest to you too, one, we depend upon each other for spiritual strength and encouragement to get to heaven. It's not that we can make each other get to heaven in our relationships. We all have to work out our own salvation. Nevertheless, God's wisdom provided the church for us as Christians so that we could help each other on the path to heaven. And we do indeed depend upon one another. But with that positive component of membership within a local church comes the negative implications we have to realize and be warned about as well, that each and every one of us, while we bring something to the body and we are important parts of the body, no matter our individual function, then it stands to reason that any single member can drastically affect the whole congregation. And it could be a positive effect, but it could also be a negative effect. And for this reason, as the Hebrew writer indicated, we need to be circumspect. We need to have our eyes peeled. We need to look carefully among each other as members of the church so that we can help each other get to heaven, protecting each other as individuals and protecting, therefore, the whole of the body, which meets in a location. And it's especially important that these concepts be understood and that they be appropriately exercised when times are difficult such as the pandemic or other more severe forms of affliction, or like the Hebrew epistle is addressed to brethren, 
during a time of persecution. Because when times get difficult, when times get hard, that's when problems can start coming out. Persecution is what the Hebrew brethren were suffering by their Jewish countrymen who had rejected Christ. And because they had turned to Christ and therefore away from the old law as He had been nailed to the cross, they were being treated poorly as they had forsaken in the eyes of their Jewish countrymen their God and their true religion, even though the Christ was the fulfillment of all things under the old covenant. And so they were beginning to be discouraged. They were being persecuted. People were plundering their goods when they left for worship. They were, they were being thrown into prison. They were being abused by those people. And in Hebrews 12 and verse 3, the Hebrew writer tries to encourage them. He says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The he is Jesus of the previous verse. You think you have it bad? Consider Jesus. You haven't got to that point yet. Don't get too weary and discouraged. Follow Him. And with that persecution that leads to discouragement, there is also the tendency for people to falter in such times with the ignorance of what God's role is in such activity. Why do we suffer? Why were they going through persecution? It's not that they had been unfaithful, but the persecution because of their faith was causing them to lean toward unfaithfulness. Why were they having to endure such things? That's what chapter 12 is about. And it addresses the persecution and puts it under the topic of the chastening of the Lord. And he explains in verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. In, in other words, you're being persecuted, but you're not thinking about this scripture he's about to mention in light of this. You're not, you're not remembering what God has already told you in times past. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And so if they were ignorant about the part that this persecution could play in their spiritual strength in their journey to heaven, then there would be the danger of them falling into sin and away from the Lord. Verse 11 says that no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's why he picks up with verses 12 and 13 to address the need for vigilance in the congregation so that each member can play their part of strengthening those who are weak and discouraged, who are parts of the whole, so that no one is falling away, no lame thing is dislocated but is healed, and so that there is an apostasy individually that leads to a greater apostasy within that body. He says, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You're discouraged. You're you're having to endure this great persecution. Times are tough, but you need to strengthen each other in this time, lest one who is lame is dislocated and so that they can be healed. Notice he says, make straight paths for your feet. He's not speaking of some spiritual or physical walk. He's not speaking of some physical race. Chapter 12 and verse 1 spoke about running with endurance the race that is set before us. And it's the endurance of faith, the race of faith. And so he's speaking of making straight paths spiritually. The paths are in their mind. He's saying, don't confuse what is happening with something that will cause you to turn away from God. It is negative, but much like Paul's thorn in the flesh, it can be the strength that you're missing. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. 
Make sure every member understands that. There are some who may have it worse than others. There are some who may be more discouraged than others. There may be some who are babes in Christ who cannot possibly fathom how this could turn out for any good whatsoever and how suffering and persecution plays a part in the spiritual encouragement and growth of a Christian. And so teach them. Make straight paths so that they don't fall away in this difficult time. But on the contrary, they're healed and they're strengthened. And so he follows up those general encouragements and admonitions to look out for each other as members of the body so that no one gets further injured. That is spiritually, ultimately to the detriment of their eternal whereabouts. And he says you need to pursue peace and holiness, the positive, and then you need to look out lest, three less, lest these three things happen. And I want us to consider those things this evening in light of realizing that we as members of a local church have responsibilities one toward another. Each and every member of a local church has the responsibility to look diligently lest certain things happen to individuals. And as we see with that root of bitterness in verse 15, lest what happens with an individual and their faltering causes many to falter within a local group. Consider firstly what we're to pursue He says, pursue peace with all. And while there are other scriptures in the New Testament which shows that all has reference not simply to the brethren, but to all men, this is addressing a local church. It's addressing Christians who are being persecuted, some of which are falling away and falling into apostasy. He's saying pursue peace with all your brethren. Peace is absolutely vital to a local congregation. When a congregation is not at peace with one another, problems are going to occur and the work of the Lord within that location is going to be hindered so long as there is enmity one with another in a local church. And I would suggest to you that peace is also extremely important because without it, we're not going to be able to glorify God in the church. You think about the context of Ephesians where Ephesians addresses the fact that the Jew and the Gentile come together as one man in Christ, and that's the great mystery that they didn't know. And Paul revealed that by the inspiration of the Spirit. And I want us to notice what that accomplishes. In Ephesians 2 and verse 14, it says, He Himself is our peace who has made both one, speaking of Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That's unheard of, that Jew and Gentile would be at peace with one another. He goes along in the context in chapter 3 after discussing that as a mystery to say this in verse 21, to God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That glorification of God in the church can come from many different components. But the context especially as it leads into chapter 4 is that there's unity within a church comprised of Jew and Gentile. Not just unity in the Spirit, but they're at peace with one another, and that's where the unity can come from. And so notice the call to that unity in Ephesians 4, and one of the most important aspects that will lead to that unity. Paul prayed, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, or he beseeched them, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We recently, last Sunday, studied in two lessons 
the concept of unity and what is biblical unity versus what is unscriptural unity. And we noted that the unity is in the Spirit. That's the biblical unity. That is, we are united in the revelation of the Spirit. We cannot speak different things and be united. But I want us to notice the bond which will ultimately promote that unity. If we're all studying our Bibles and we're all diligent and we're all growing in Christ, then we'll be united in the Scripture. But does that mean there's nothing else that can threaten that unity? Not at all. There are brethren who agree on the same things doctrinally. They agree on the same things morally. They would never disagree on Scripture. They know what the Scripture says, and they both are convicted by it, and they are both living by it to that extent. They speak the same thing. They're of the same mind and the same judgment, but they're still not unified. There are congregations like that who have split, not over doctrinal differences. They've split over, I've heard of churches splitting over the color of the carpet. They can't agree on the color of the carpet in their building. And so they split. Why does that happen? Because they're not endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. That would come with the study of the Scripture and the enforcement of the Scripture. But he adds, in the bond of peace. You've got to be at peace with one another. It's not that Jew and Gentile would have no differences as they came together in Christ. They'd have the similarity in the agreement of Christ. There would still be differences culturally. There would be differences of their past. That's what passages like 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and Romans 14 speak of. There are differences. There are things that you're going to differ on that are inconsequential as far as God is concerned, but you can't let those jeopardize unity. You've got to be at peace with one another. And so consider what Paul adds to that, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He precedes that with with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering and bearing with one another in love. There's got to be humility. There's got to be love. There's got to be the willingness to defer one to another. Because when differences arise, which have nothing to do with Christ, have nothing to do with Scripture, we've got to be of the mindset to preserve the peace and therefore the unity. Pursue peace. And it's especially in times of external adversity, like with the Hebrew brethren in Hebrews 12, where such can lead to conflict within the church. And it may not be based on doctrinal or moral differences. It may just be irritability. It may just be something going on specifically in one member's life, and they allow that to affect their relationship with brethren. It can be anything that we go through that can fall under the topic of adversity in life. And we can agree with our brethren. But in times of difficulty, we need to make sure that we're still at peace with our brethren. That those things don't jeopardize our relationships and therefore bring in in, uh, disunity and and adversity to the church. Notice in James 5 and verse 9, after speaking of being oppressed by the rich, And being patient, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judges standing at the door. And so all of these brethren who are a part of who James is addressing are being oppressed by the rich, but they're grumbling against one another. Don't do that. Why would they grumble against one another? Well, irritability from without may cause irritability within if you're not careful. Likewise, in Galatians 5 and verse 15, he says, If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. We're on the same team, in other words. You know, there are a lot of times in the sports world where where stars will join up 
and the talent is there to win a championship, but the question always remains, what about the chemistry? Will they be able to defer to one another? Will they be able to get along? And it doesn't matter how much talent is there and how much they all want to win that championship if they can't get along with one another, if, if they allow petty differences and external conflicts to bring inside the locker room and the team, those teams don't win championships. You think about that on a spiritual level. We will jeopardize the church of our Lord if we can't be at peace with one another. Those things have consequences. And he says pursue peace with all and holiness. Holiness is absolutely pertinent just as peace is. But I want to suggest to you that it's that next level of importance because people can be at peace with one another even though holiness is compromised. There can be unity in diversity of spiritual thought that is unscriptural, and so it's unity that is unscriptural, but still the brethren are getting along. They're going along to get along. And so this peace cannot be at the expense of holiness. If anything, it should promote holiness. And it promotes holiness as we try to live at peace with one another by looking out for each other and helping each other get to heaven. He says holiness, pursue holiness. And I want us to notice he adds, without which no one, no one will see the Lord. If we are not holy, we will not get to heaven. Matthew 5 and verse 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And so peace is not to be sought to the neglect of holiness. It is supposed to be sought within holiness. An example of that is in Romans 12 and verse 18 in a context which could include others outside the church. But I want us to notice what Paul says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Does that mean because there might be conflict which arises from addressing sin, I want to avoid that to keep the peace? No, that's the exact thing Paul's talking about. You don't compromise in areas of the faith to promote peace. The only peace that is right in God's eyes is what Ephesians 4 talked about, which is unity in the Spirit with the bond of peace. And so pursue peace and holiness. Some avoid confronting sin for fear of that conflict. But I want to suggest to you if we approach sin and this is what Roman Hebrews 12 and verses 12 through 17 is talking about, approaching sin, dealing with sin, watching out for one another, and making sure that we're not caught up in sin and falling away. If, if our attitude is right in approaching sin and confronting it, then peace will be preserved. And not only our attitude in confronting sin, but our attitude in being confronted by our own sin. And Galatians 6 talks about that. In verse 1, Paul says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so someone will neglect the duty to address sin in their brother or sister's life because they want to keep the peace. They don't want that conflict. It's going to be uncomfortable. But if they do it in the way that the Spirit commands... You're going to avoid that. Not necessarily in every situation. There will be people who don't receive that well. That's on them. But if we do it the Lord's way and receive it the Lord's way, then peace will continue even while holiness is preserved. But in any rate, sin is never to be tolerated. It's always to be dealt with. Sin is never okay 
In 1 Peter 1 and verse 15, the Apostle Peter says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So with those two positive commands, pursue peace and holiness, comes the negative side of things. Look out lest these three things happen. As you're pursuing peace with all men and holiness within the congregation, this is going to have to take place. And so we pursue these things and we seek to prevent these three things. And these are logical progressions, I would suggest to you, in degrees of the severity of apostasy within an individual and what that does to the congregation, but they're all descriptive of the same person turning away from the Lord. And so we look carefully, keep our eyes peeled, always be searching for red flags. And and let me suggest to you, we're not searching for red flags because we want to find red flags. We're just keeping our eyes peeled and we're not naive so that when red flags come up, we can see them and handle them and take care of them. It's not that anyone is trying to find problems. It's that problems do exist and they will come up. And we need to be aware so that we can see them when they do. So he says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. He addressed this earlier in this great epistle in Hebrews, the third chapter. Keeping in mind this entire letter is about apostasy. It's not about a comparison between the old and new law. Romans and Galatians better suit that. It certainly has comparisons between the old and the new law, but it specifically addresses those things because of the nature of the apostasy. He's talking about apostasy in this whole epistle. Be warned that you do not fall away. And he brings the Israelites up as an example of that. In Hebrews 3 and verse 16, he says, Who having heard rebelled, Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with all those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith and those who heard it. They not only missed out on the physical promised land of Canaan, they missed out on the spiritual promised land of heaven. When their corpses fell in the wilderness because of disobedience, it may have been that some repented. Moses didn't enter the physical promised land because he sinned. But he made it right with God. There may have been some that made it right with God, but as a whole, looking at it, they not only lost their physical life, they lost their spiritual life. And that's what the Hebrew writer is paralleling it toward. They didn't enter in the true rest. And you won't enter in the true rest if you follow after their example. You know, contrary to popular thought in the religious world, it is possible to lose our salvation. It is possible to receive the grace of God. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 6 suggests, receive the grace of God in vain. That is, you have obeyed the gospel and received the remission of your sins and have been given the blessed hope of eternity in heaven only to give it right back and forfeit it. In chapter 3, again in verse 12, he addresses brethren. He's not addressing people who didn't already have this grace. He's addressing brethren. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, that's a strong word, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. 
And I want us to consider that context of chapter 12. He's saying, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, look carefully. And they could fall short of the grace of God under this persecution if they didn't view and approach the persecution properly. Verses 12 and 13 speak of the fact that they need to be strengthened and the paths need to be straight so that what is lame may not be dislocated. That followed verse 11, which described the persecution as chastening, that yes, it's not joyful for the present, but painful, but afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if you don't take this and approach it as a training situation, you will fall away. It will have the adverse effect on you. So look carefully, lest anyone grow so discouraged that they become bitter toward the Lord and they turn away from Jesus and back to the Jewish faith and therefore fall short of the grace of God. Why would we look so carefully? Why would we be so circumspect and diligent about looking out for each other in that regard that we don't fall short of the grace of God? Well, I think Peter gives us a description which shows us how terrible that kind of situation is. In verse 20 of 2 Peter 2, he says, If after they, those false teachers who were Christians, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. If you've ever had a dog, you've seen a dog sniff where he shouldn't be sniffing or perhaps turning to his vomit. And even though a dog will be a dog, you tell him to stop. It's disgusting. Don't do that. I know you're a dog, but don't do that. I don't want to see it, and it's not a good thing. We know how disgusting and vile that is. A person who has accepted the grace of God only to turn away from it in the end fits that description, and we want to prevent this sad state for any of our brethren. I want us to notice, though, that he adds to what we seek to prevent any root of bitterness he describes springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This is, while it might not be a quotation, certainly an allusion to an Old Testament passage, the root of bitterness. In Deuteronomy 29 and verse 14, Moses is speaking to this generation that's going to enter the promised land. The other had died or was currently perishing, and this new generation is being taught the law. It is a recitation. Deuteronomy means second law. It's, it's a recitation of that law given on Sinai to remind them of what God has told them to do, remind them of the covenant they're to keep as they go into this land. In verse 14 of Deuteronomy 29, he says, I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart 
as though a drunkard could be included with the sober. So remember not only the idolatry in Egypt, but when we came into this land and we, we crossed over the river, when we, when we passed through those cities and those nations, the idols that they served and worshipped, lest you turn to those idols. And he describes the person who turns away from God, is unfaithful to God, and starts to serve another God, one who has it or is a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so this bitter root has reference to a person who is unfaithful to God, having turned to sin, ultimately. Remember the description of Peter concerning Simon, who had been baptized, but who had sinned by seeking to purchase the gift of God with money. Peter told him, Repent therefore of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Root of bitterness is not just simply someone who is a bitter person or bitter towards someone else. A root of bitterness is a person who is in sin. A root of bitterness is a person who has turned away from God. But I want us to notice he adds to this, and it's something that's implicit within the Deuteronomy 29 passage. He adds to this, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. You've heard that one rotten apple rotten makes, makes the whole bunch spoiled. It's the same concept. We've got to realize that an individual in sin will certainly have a negative effect on the whole. An individual's apostasy, in other words, doesn't exist in a vacuum. And I'm afraid that whether we may not subscribe to that thought verbally, sometimes we show it by our actions if we just neglect a person who is caught in sin and we don't address it. As if that person's sin, that person's decision to turn from God is only going to affect their salvation. And mind you, that's enough to address that sin in that person's life if we love them. But if we love all the brethren, if we want to preserve the unity of the church, if we want to preserve the unity of the Lord's body, and we want to preserve the purity of the Lord's body, then we will address that sin because that root of bitterness, that, that attitude of apostasy and unfaithfulness and of worldliness, if it's in one person and it comes out and it is not addressed, it is going to, beyond a shadow of a doubt, affect everyone in that congregation. And it may be that someone is strong enough to fight off the advances of Satan in such a situation, but every congregation has its babes in Christ, and they may not be so strong. Remember in Galatians 2 where the Apostle Paul addressed the sin of Peter as he played the hypocrite. When the Jewish brethren came along, he departed from the Gentile brethren and he did not associate with them. It says that the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas, an incredibly faithful and encouraging individual, strong in the spirit, was carried away with their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. Notice that phrase, even Barnabas, he's making a point. Even this man who is so strong was carried away by the root of bitterness of Peter at that time. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 17, the apostle says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Here are people in your midst teaching error. Don't ignore them as if their error is only on their own head. Certainly, 
they're going to reap what they have sown, but you'll reap as well the negative effects of their false teaching if you're not careful. So beware lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Beware lest any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble defiling the many. Not just that person, but defiling the many. And lastly, he further describes what they need to seek to prevent. Anyone ultimately following the example of Esau. Anyone being a fornicator and profane person. We might remember the story of Jacob and Esau when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. He was in the field laboring. Jacob prepared a stew for him. Esau came in and was hungry. And Jacob said, I'll give you food if you sell me your birthright. And he said, what is this to me? I'm about to die. So he sold his birthright for one morsel of food. And so he's rightly described by the Hebrew writer as a fornicator and profane person. Fornicator in a spiritual sense. He forsook the Lord in forsaking his birthright. You think about the birthright of Jacob that he took from Esau. It was not just a birthright to receive treasures and lands. It was the birthright to be a direct participant in the lineage of the Messiah, the Son of God, to come and save the world. And Esau didn't think enough of that. He sold it. He turned from the Lord, as James 4 indicates, that those who turn from the Lord are adulterers and adulteresses, and he was profane in doing so. It's the Greek word babelo, and it is defined by Art and Gingrich as pertaining to being worldly as opposed to having an interest in transcendent matters. You're totally worldly. Treating the holy as common, thinking something as important as Esau's birthright, um, lesser significance than food. A person who turns away from the grace of God to the world is profane. They don't realize how much the prospect of heaven actually is. They trade something that is temporary for or eternal for what is temporary. And I want us to notice there that this strengthens the negative of those decisions by showing that Esau immediately regretted it. It says, you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, that is, of his father, though he sought it diligently with tears. And it's not describing the idea that once you've fallen away, you can never recover from that, even though Hebrews 6 warns that there may be a time where a person is so far gone that you can't tell them anything they don't already know and renew them to repentance. But it's saying that there will be a time where it's going to be too late. And that person will suffer eternal regret. They will have realized, as 1 Peter 1 and verse 4 describes the inheritance, they have traded something that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven, for something as described in verse 17 of 1 John 2 as passing away. The world is passing away in the lust of it. They have traded the eternal and invaluable for that which is but a moment, and they will regret it for eternity. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus where the rich man cried in Luke 16, 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Eternal regret. 
The only thing that is lasting that sin offers is regret. We want to avoid that for any of our brethren. But I want us to consider that second one a little bit more this evening. He describes those people as a root of bitterness. And furthermore than a root of bitterness, describes the effect that they would have on others. As their bitterness of transgression and unfaithfulness to God springs up, and it causes trouble in the congregation, among others, and defiles many. We need to realize that we're to look out for each other so that we don't lose our salvation individually. But while we're doing that, realize that we're not just saving that person's soul as we look out for them, but we are preserving the peace, unity, and purity, and therefore the hope of heaven for the entire congregation. Actions have consequences. There is a domino effect that can occur if we don't heed the warning of Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. So we need to prevent roots of bitterness from springing up and defiling the many. I think one of the ways that we can prevent that from happening is knowing, first of all, that one can affect the many. As I mentioned before, transgression and apostasy of an individual doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not that it only affects them. It affects so many others. Not just their family, but also their family of God, the church. There's the tendency of some to act as though, whether explicitly or implicitly by their actions, as though one erring is inconsequential for the whole. That has never been the case in the entire history of the Lord's people. Remember Achan and Joshua 7, after the children of Israel had defeated Jericho, there was this measly city of Ai that they just thought they could squash like a bug. So without consulting God, Joshua sent some men in to destroy Ai, and they failed miserably, and people died. And Joshua wondered within himself why it was that they could defeat Jericho, but could not defeat this measly town of Ai. And the Lord brought up the problem, there is sin in the camp. But it wasn't that the whole camp, the whole nation, had taken their focus away from God and was unfaithful to God. There was one man, Achan. And Joshua 7, after they were commanded not to take any of the spoils of Jericho, there were things that were accursed, there were things that were supposed to be dedicated to God. There was one man, Achan, who sinned. And Joshua brought the confession out of him. And Achan said in Joshua 7.20, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. But it didn't just affect him, it affected the whole nation. There were men who died because of what he did. Not what they did, what he did. And I want us to notice the words of Joshua in Joshua 7.25. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. Why have you troubled us? Joshua didn't take of the spoils. Any of Achan's family didn't take of the spoils. They ended up getting stoned, by the way. Achan took the spoils. We need to realize that one can affect the many. Our recent study from last Sunday, we looked at 1 Corinthians 5-6 where Paul said, Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
when one person is in sin and they don't repent of it, their sin goes unchecked, it goes unaddressed, whether it be something as serious as 1 Corinthians 5, a sexual immorality not even to be named among the Gentiles, or something that seems like a respectable kind of worldliness, as sometimes some put it, like forsaking the assembly, it will affect the whole. When an individual no longer comes faithfully, and no one addresses that, and the sin is not pointed out, it's not disciplined, it's not corrected, that's when more and more start to drop off. And you could add any sin to that equation, that is the logical outcome. One affects the many. As much as if your arm is infected, it can spread to the rest of your body. If you don't fix it or cut the arm off, it can affect the whole. Speaking of false teachers, in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. We must not be naive. If we don't address the sin within someone's life who is a member of the church, it's not just them that is going to lose in the end. It may be many, many more. By this, many become defiled. We need to know that one can affect the many, and on top of that, we need to know that the Lord requires accountability. You know, I think that that's just one subtle way that Satan can affect the whole congregation spiritually and their standing with God by one person who has decided to expressly turn away from God and back to the world. Because even if the others don't follow in that immorality or that error, and they just simply neglect their duty that God has given them to address that sin, to administer discipline like the Lord commands us, then they lose their standing with God. That's what the Corinthian church, that's one of the, the many sins they were guilty of in 1 Corinthians. That's what Paul was addressing. One of the things that is keeping you, the church in Corinth, from being right with God is you won't address this brother in sin. It's not that they agreed that his sin was okay. He said, your glorying is not good. That suggests a pride which suggested that sin of that one brother can't touch us. But that was keeping them from being in fellowship with God. It's not right to have this idea that it's none of our business. It's their business. We can't get into each other's business. The salvation of our brethren is our business. And the purity of the church is our business. And no one's above that. Notice the language of 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where Paul says, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. And pursuing what is good includes the warning of those who are not within the boundaries of God's authority. You know, in Hebrews 12 and verse 15, he prefaced these lest this person come up, lest this happen, lest this happen, with looking carefully. That's one word in the Greek. It is the Greek word episkopeo. You recognize that? It's translated as overseers in 1 Peter 5 and verse 2, speaking of the elders that they serve as overseers. And while it 
describes the elders that are in an office of authority in 1 Peter 5 and verse 2, it applies to all of our, even those who aren't elders, all of our responsibilities as just brethren, members of a congregation. Not suggesting that we all have the authority of an elder. The elders have a distinct authority, but it has reference to oversight. Martin Gingrich says it means to give attention to, look at, take care, see to it. And so you have an interest in my business and I have an interest in your business and we all have an interest in each other's business. We are to see to it that each one of us is looking faithfully and none of us has the right to say it's none of your business. And none of us has the right to neglect that duty by saying it's none of my business. In Hebrews 3 and verse 13, he said it this way, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. But I think sometimes we downplay this idea of exhortation because we often describe it as encouragement. You know, exhortation can indeed mean encouragement. But the word actually has reference to a calling to your side, to invite and to invoke, to to call near. Come over near by me. And it may be to lift them up and encourage them. But it may be you're so far away from the standard of truth, you need to come back over to where we are. That's exhortation. Exhortation comes in many forms. Exhortation comes by encouragement, but it may come from uh, um, admonition and correction. At any rate, exhortation comes from Scripture. You use the Scripture to exhort our brethren. And I want us to notice what Timothy is told Scripture is profitable for. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So you teach them. You reprove them for being against Scripture. You further correct them and instruct them in righteousness. Exhortation comes in many forms. So it includes calling sin for what it is and requiring repentance. But then also, understand the component of love in matters of discipline. You know that discipline is part of the context of Hebrews 12. I said before that they were... They were following the Lord faithfully and this persecution came even while they were faithful. In Hebrews chapter 10, the apostle um, or the Hebrew writer reminds them of how they were enduring persecution at the beginning and now they're faltering. It's not that they were unfaithful so God struck them with this punishment. They were faithful and that's why he's addressing this chastening chapter 12 as chastening. You didn't do anything wrong. This is actually to strengthen you, to build you up in regard to this discipline. And we need to understand that discipline, while it may come across as negative, comes from a loving place, whether it's from God to us or whether it's administered from one of the brethren to another brother or sister in Christ. And discipline also, like exhortation, comes in many forms. It's not just 1 Corinthians 5, withdraw from the disorderly one. That's really the last step. Discipline is what we're enduring right now and what we're undertaking right now. When we study God's Word, we're being disciplined by God. We're being taught to refrain from worldliness and pursue righteousness. We're we're being brought up under discipline. Those in the military are described as those who are disciplined. And it's not suggesting that they're being punished all the time. They're disciplined people who have character and who have an ability to control themselves. And we need to understand all levels of discipline have the component of love. There are some who want to neglect their duty of discipline, whether it is withdrawing from brethren or the very first step of addressing their sin. And it may may correct itself 
like that in the snap of a finger. They neglect it because they think that's not loving. But notice 2 John 5. He says, I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that you love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. We love by keeping the commandments of God. We love by following the commandment of discipline. 1 Peter 4 and verse 8 explains it this way, Above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. How does love cover a multitude of sins? Notice the parallel passage of James 5 and verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. The person who corrects an erring brother covers a multitude of sins. Correcting an erring brother is love. And that's discipline. We need to realize that certainly one can affect the many. The Lord requires us to hold each other accountable. And when we hold each other accountable in that way, we are exercising the greatest command to love each other according to God's Word. We need to recognize our God-given duty then, and we need to practice it. We cannot expect to stand before God in the judgment when we've neglected such duties and expect for Him to say, well done. We've got to cover all areas of the New Testament. And we've got to realize what a great danger it poses toward a local congregation and its purity and success in the gospel if we let sin fester. No matter how great in our minds or how little in our minds, sin will affect a congregation and they're standing with the Lord. If you're here this evening and I've not obeyed the gospel, we want to offer an invitation to you to do so before it's too late. And if if you have obeyed the gospel and there's some other spiritual thing that we can assist you with, we invite you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.